when the first monstrous thunderclap of the cannonade smashed against his reinforced shelter, Sergeant Albert Pfluger fell off his cot. Though the main bombardment was nearly five miles to the west, wave upon wave of concussive shock showered dirt on him and shook the ground as if it were a storm-ridden sea. Dragging himself from the floor, Pfluger ran out to his headquarters command post, where the phone was ringing incessantly with reports of entire units wiped out and others reeling back from the shattered front. Mobs of frenzied soldiers were already inundating the rear. Pfluger watched them stagger by, shell-shocked, hysterical, trickling blood from the mouth, nose, and ears. They were the survivors of General Voronov's god of war, the heavy artillery. That vibrant prose was from chapter 27 of William Craig's Enemy at the Gates, the book drawn from first-hand accounts of the biggest, bloodiest battle in history, the memories of people who were at the Battle of Stalingrad. After four months of fighting for the city on the bend of the Volga, the Red Army launched Operation Ring. This was an immense attack by three armies to finally crush the Germans who had arrived four months earlier, and they inflicted unprecedented destruction and suffering. Now it was Russia's turn. Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. This is episode 42, and the first to be recorded and podcast in 2024. So, Happy New Year. It's been um, over a month since I spoke to you last. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you, as always, from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also called Ottawa. Now, before I go on with the episode, I just want to remind you that if you like this podcast, please follow or subscribe on your preferred podcasting app. And you can, starting in this new year, you can start to get it earlier than others do, as well as bonus content by supporting us for any amount through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa. Thanks. So, as I said, this is the first podcast episode of 2024, and it's been a number of weeks since I last since the last episode. So, just for a quick recap of where we are, we left the scene as the new year of 1943 dawned on the Kuban steppe around Stalingrad. By December 1942, the German Sixth Army had been surrounded in and around the city. After four months of bloody resistance in the city. Uh, which saw unprecedented casualties for both sides, the Red Army launched Operation Uranus. This was a huge pincer movement where two fronts, comprising five complete Red Armies, fresh forces, sat out from points 100 kilometers west and another 60 kilometers south of the city. So two parts on those overextended defensive lines. They smashed through their weaker axis defenders to meet up at the banks of the Don River, trapping some 300,000 German, Italian, Romanian, and Hungarian troops in a huge pocket. The Germans called it a Kessel, or cauldron. Ironic. It would soon become very hot, in a metaphorical sense, with intense fighting. Even more intensive than before. But also very, very cold as the Germans were caught for the second year in a row in a Russian winter without adequate clothing, supplies, or food. All the German generals, including the commander of the 6th Army, Friedrich Paulus, said that the only realistic strategy at this point would be to break out of the encirclement, fight through the Soviet lines, and regroup farther west. But the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, refused any retreat from the city. He ordered the 6th Army to stand firm, to not cede any ground in Stalingrad, to fight to the last bullet and the last man. 
Hermann Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, enabled this fantasy by insisting the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, could supply the forces in Stalingrad by air. They had a number of airfields within the Kessel or cauldron. This effort failed spectacularly. The Luftwaffe's best day of resupply brought in a third of the daily requirement, which meant that the men, the average soldiers, went hungry most of the time. And in fact, malnutrition and starvation became a daily occurrence for hundreds of men. Hitler did authorize, to help out, a reorganization of German forces in southern Russia. So he combined Army Groups A and B, which he had previously split from Army Group South. Anyway, he combined them back into Army Group Dawn, so a brand new name, under the command of a man, arguably Germany's best general on the Eastern Front, Erich von Manstein. This command uh, included the 4th Panzer Army and the 6th Army. So, in effect, Paulus, commander of the 6th Army, was reporting to von Manstein. Manstein was the general who had conquered Crimea for the Germans a few months earlier, and he had devastated Sevastopol. So, here he is in 1942, uh, December 1942, orders the 4th Panzer Army under Hermann Hott to open up a corridor through Soviet forces to relieve and supply Stalingrad. The 4th Panzer Army launched Operation Winter Storm, moving up from the south toward the Kessel. Hitler gave permission to Paulus to fight through the encirclement from the inside, and the idea was these two groups would meet up. But he only allowed Paulus to send any forces to do this as long as they continued to hold the city. In other words, I'll give you a chance to live, but only if you do the impossible. Hitler did express one truth at this point. The 6th Army did not have the fuel they needed to drive their remaining tanks, and there were fewer of them every day, the 25 miles or so to meet their rescuers. So if they couldn't even make it there, why bother trying? That would only use up the last of the fuel even faster in a futile effort. Now, during all this German back and forth where these commanders and officers are arguing with each other, the Soviets were busy. After Operation Uranus, they launched Operation Little Saturn, destroying German forces and their Axis fellows south of the Don River and setting up, spoiler alert, a Soviet retaking of the city of Rostov-on-Don, so west of Stalingrad. But that's in the future. For now, let's concentrate on Stalingrad and the American and the area immediately west of it, that lozenge of territory held, for now, by the Germans. It was not a good situation. On Christmas Eve, December 24, 1942, the Red Army raided the Tatinskaya airfield, outside this, the Kessel, which was the main supply depot for Stalingrad, so where the uh, Luftwaffe supply planes took off for that last leg to deliver supplies into the city. You can see where Tatanskaya is in relation to the city and the front lines in map one on the web page for this episode. With that airfield gone, the 6th Army's supply situation became even more desperate. So that's where we are now. The 6th Army is on the rim of disaster, without supplies, even food, and with no relief able to reach them. What's their response to this? We're going to look at that. But first, it's time for a regular feature, What Else is Happening in the War? The fighting on the Eastern Front was not happening in isolation. It was all part of the greatest world-spanning war in history. Events in one theater of operation, like the Eastern Front, or even Stalingrad, had impacts literally around the world. So, in the Pacific, 
On January 2nd, American and Australian forces recaptured the town of Buna in New Guinea from the Japanese. A week later, or less than a week later, on the 7th, Japanese landed more troops in New Guinea at Lai. So they haven't given up on the island, nor on their threats to the Australian mainland. On 14th January, the Casablanca Conference began. On the heels of the success of Operation Torch, where British, American, and Free French forces swept the axis out of Morocco and Algeria, Churchill and Roosevelt, the heads respectively of the UK and the United States, met to discuss the invasion of mainland Europe. The next day, British launched an offensive toward Rommel's forces in Tripoli in Libya, following those up on those huge advances across North Africa. The next day, the 16th, the Royal Air Force began a two-night bombing of Berlin. On the 18th of January, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising began. This is where Jewish people who had been forced and trapped in the small area of Warsaw in Poland rose up to fight for their survival, really. At that same day, defenders in Leningrad managed to link up with relief forces. I'm going to go into that in depth in the next episode. On the 19th, General Georgi Zhukov was promoted to marshal to command the overall Stalingrad offensive, not defense, offensive. So up to this point, he had been a, a colonel general, and now he's a marshal of the Soviet Union. On the 24th of January, the Casablanca Conference ends after 10 days. That's an extraordinary long conference. And with a decision by the British and the Americans to demand the unconditional surrender of Germany. Nothing else would end the war from their point of view. On the 27th of January, the American Army Air Force conducted its first raid on Germany, specifically the Wilhelmshaven Naval Base on the North Sea. On the 28th, Germans brought in a new conscription law, opening mobilization to men from age 16 up to 65, and for women as well, from age 17 to 50. On the 29th, back in the Pacific, the naval battle of Rennell Island began near Guadalcanal. So Guadalcanal was a setting for a number of engagements between the American and Australian navies against the Japanese navy. In this particular engagement on the 29th, the Americans lost their heavy cruiser, the USS Chicago. But on the 30th, the last Japanese forces left Guadalcanal. So that's the situation worldwide, very high level point of view. So now let's bring our focus back to the Eastern Front. So with the Germans trapped, the 6th Army trapped in the Kessel in Stalingrad and a piece of land, an area about 30 kilometers wide around it, up to the banks of the Volga and the Don Rivers, General Valentin Rokossovsky, the general in command of the Don Front, got authority to finally crush the Germans to liberate the city and destroy the 6th Army. But just before launching that final operation, the Stavka, the Soviet high command, decided they needed to issue an ultimatum. Now, different historians differ on who wrote it, who came up with it, whose idea it was. Uh, some say it was Rokossovsky himself who wrote it. He signed it, that's for sure. Others point out, though, that Marshal Nikolai Voronov, head of the Red Army Artillery, and in January 1943, coordinator of operations of the Dawn Front, drafted it. And, and, of course, Stalin had a lot to do with the wording. There was a lot of back and forth between uh, the forces around Stalingrad and the Stavka in Moscow before the final wording was approved. And I'll put a link to the a printout for that, or a link to the web page that shows the full text of the, of the ultimatum on the web page. The ultimatum was addressed, quote, to the commander-in-chief of the German 6th Army, 
Colonel General Paulus, or his representative. As you can imagine from communists, it began with a wordy preamble. Quote, the 6th Army, formations of the 4th Panzer Army, and those units sent to reinforce them have been completely encircled since the 23rd of November 1942. The soldiers of the Red Army have sealed this German army group with an unbreakable ring. All hopes of the rescue of your troops by a German offensive from the south or southwest have proved vain. The German units hastening to your assistance were defeated by the Red Army and the remnants are now withdrawing to Rostov. The German air transport fleet, which brought you a starvation ration of food, munitions and fuel, has been compelled by the Red Army's successful and rapid advance repeatedly to withdraw to airfields more distant from the encircled troops. It should be added that the German air transport fleet is suffering enormous losses in machines and crews at the hands of the Russian Air Force. The help they can bring to the besieged forces is rapidly becoming illusory. End quote. It goes on from there. And it's, this part is, it's not like the Germans didn't know this already. In, in short, though, uh, Rokosovsky was saying, resistance is futile. Now, the ultimatum offered pretty generous terms in the context of the savagery of the German attack and its occupation of the city and the area to, uh, to the west of it. The, the ultimatum guaranteed the safety of all officers and men who ceased resisting the Red Army and their return to Germany or any other country they wished to go to after the war was over. It even allowed senior officers to keep their swords. I understand your skepticism on how well the Red Army would actually treat German prisoners of war, especially after the bloodiest and cruelest battle in history. But the Soviet government had issued a memo before the ultimatum to its troops ordering humane treatment of all POWs. This came out on 2nd January as I said before the ultimatum. It read in part, the POW remained too long inside the units of the Red Army. Often they received no food. Therefore, they arrived quite exhausted and sick. End quote. The memo then directed the Red Army to, quote, give timely medical attention to the wounded or sick POW. Categorically discontinue sending on a march wounded, sick, exhausted, or frozen prisoners. Such prisoners are to be attended to in a field hospital and forwarded when transportation is available. Limit the daily marching time to 25 to 30 kilometers, end quote. Uh, note that they're kind of using POW in the plural sense, prisoners of war, not prisoner of wars. Anyway, generally the idea was that the Red Army was to care for prisoners of war, provide proper food, rest, clothes, sanitary conditions, and the basics of life. We'll get to the reality of the Soviet treatment of German prisoners at Stalingrad. But first, delivering the ultimatum to the Germans was a whole story in itself. Again, various historians disagree on the details, and some omit many, but the best that I found is from Antti Bivor's Stalingrad, The Fateful Siege, 1942 to 1943. Once Stalin has signed off on the text of the ultimatum, the Red Army had to figure out how to deliver it in a way that the Germans would believe. Keep in mind that propaganda played a huge role in this conflict, even at this point. Both sides were dropping leaflets, both sides were broadcasting radio messages, and both sides were concerned about how much their men listened to enemy propaganda and how much they believed. Now, the Red Air Force had been dropping leaflets and urging the Axis invaders to surrender for months now. Radios broadcast German prisoners of war urging their comrades to surrender. So that's what's going on. So to deliver this uh, final ultimatum, two officers were chosen to take it in an oilskin pouch to the German officers. They were Major Alexander Mikhailovich Smyslov of Army Intelligence 
and Captain Nikolai Dmitrovich Dyatlenko of the NKVD, a Ukrainian. The Don Front Quartermaster requisitioned all the senior officers he could find to lend these men the best parts of their uniforms so they looked as sharp as possible. When night fell on 7th January, so Orthodox Christmas Day, the Soviet guns stopped firing. Through the night, loudspeakers repeated a message telling the Germans to expect truce envoys. When the sun rose on January 8th, all firing stopped in the castle. The two officers in their spiffy, borrowed, and not particularly warm uniforms, along with a corporal carrying a white flag and a trumpet, started walking toward the German trenches. The corporal played a signal on the trumpet to call the enemy's attention and held the white flag high. The three men got about 100 meters ahead when the Germans started firing and they had to die for cover in their spiffy uniforms. When the firing ceased, they got up and started forward again, the corporal waving the white flag continuously. The Germans opened fire again, but not toward the envoys. This pattern repeated until the commander of army intelligence in the Dawn Front called off the attempt. He called the envoys to return to their headquarters, and they changed back into their regular uniforms. That night, the Red Air Force dropped more leaflets, printed with the text of the ultimatum. As Antony Beaver put it, they also, quote, supported the words with bombs, end quote. Red Army radio stations broadcast the ultimatum, and even though the Germans had orders not to listen to nor read the pamphlets, they did. Some even asked Hiwis, the Russian civilians and prisoners working for them, whether or not voluntarily is a matter for another whole episode. Anyway, they asked the Hiwis to translate. And, yes, they got the message. From top to bottom, officers to men. Around midnight, Smyslov and Dyatlenko, the truce envoys, were rousted out of bed after only a few hours of sleep and told to try again. They also learned that they had been awarded the Order of the Red Star, a medal. Also, the colonel of army intelligence, the man who had ordered them to go out and then come back, I.V. Vinogradov, had been promoted from colonel to major general. Vinogradov bundled the envoys as well as the newly minted general who replaced him in his old post into a staff car. They drove through the night, the general singing songs and celebrating their promotions around the German perimeter, crossing the Don River and doubling back to the headquarters of the 96th Rifle Division near the town of Madankova. See the map, map one, on the webpage for this episode. You can see where it is. There, as Bivor describes it, Quote, rather like condemned prisoners, end quote, the Slavon Dyatlenko got a better than usual breakfast. Then they drove closer to the front before approaching the Germans on foot with a new but improvised white flag of truce. Joining them this time with a trumpet was a warrant officer from the musical platoon named Sidorov, as well as a lieutenant who guided them through the minefields. Meanwhile, the generals stayed well back watching. That's what generals do. Sidorov played the attention signal on the trumpet as they approached the German trenches and bunkers. When a German warrant officer demanded that what they wanted, Dietlenko asked for officers to come and talk to them. This led to a tense standoff for a little while as someone bent back to find an officer or two, and the German soldiers there taunted the Soviet envoys. That blows my mind. Soldiers starving and freezing, wearing rags, taunting the enemy that that offered generous terms of surrender or to wipe them out. Eventually, German officers arrived on the scene. Uh, There was another negotiation for guarantees of safety for the envoys. And then Spislov showed the sealed oilskin packet containing the message from the Soviet high command. The Germans asked what the message contained. But yet Lenko replied, I am not ordered to know. So the envoys were blindfolded and taken to their regimental commander. After some comical slipping on the ice, they arrived at a bunker. I'm going to quote directly from Beaver's book again. The three troops envoys found themselves with their blindfolds removed in a well-built bunker lined with tree trunks. Jadlenko noticed two sacks with spoiled gray grain, which they were trying to dry out. 
That serves you right, you snakes, Tatlanko thought. You burned the Stalingrad grade elevator, and now you have to dig food for yourselves out from under the snow. End quote. A colonel arrived and demanded to know by what authority the envoys came. They replied, quote, the Stavka of the Red Army Command, end quote. The officer left, probably to telephone his superiors. While waiting, the envoys made small talk about Christmas celebrations and they even compared sidearms with the Germans. Sidorov, the trumpet player, offered the Germans his packet of the best cigarettes the Russians had. Eventually, the colonel arrived with a downcast expression. Quote, I am ordered not to take you anywhere, not to accompany you, nor, nor to receive anything from you, only to cover your eyes again, lead you back, to return your pistols, and to guarantee your safety. End quote. Jatlenko tried to hand over the oilskin packet in return for a signed receipt so he could prove that he had carried out his mission. No deal. Then he asked the colonel to write on the packet itself that he refused to accept it, but the colonel would not even do that. That was it. The envoys were blindfolded again and led back to the trenches. There, the Germans removed their blindfolds and sent the Soviet envoys on their way back to their own front lines. When they arrived back at their own headquarters, Major General Vinogradov told Sidorov, the trumpet-playing, white-flag-waving warrant officer, to draw a detailed map of the German defenses. He did so quickly and accurately, indicating the enemy's fire points. Apparently, the man had re remembered everything, and yet Lenko wondered if those were his orders, and that was the whole point of this exercise anyway. Jetlenko later wrote of this that he felt sad and tired about the whole affair. The failure of this peace mission meant that many men would needlessly suffer and die. Obviously, the Germans in that bunker knew what the oil skin pouch contained. They had seen the leaflets, and they knew that Paulus and Hitler had rejected surrender of the Sixth Army. Hitler did get the ultimatum. Copies were raining down not only on Stalingrad and the surrounding steppe, they were being broadcast by radio. According to historian and author Anthony Tucker Jones in Slaughter on the Eastern Front, Hitler and Stalin's War, 1941-1945, the text was radioed to Hitler's werewolf headquarters in Venezia in Ukraine. And it included Rokossovsky's warning. Quote, if you choose to reject our proposal for your capitulation, be warned that the forces of the Red Army and the Red Air Force will be compelled to take steps to destroy the surrounded German troops and that you will bear the responsibility for their annihilation. End quote. But Hitler rejected the appeal. The Sixth Army would stay in Stalingrad, fighting to their death. I think this is a good point to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at how the Soviet high command and the men around Stalingrad reacted to Hitler's rejection of their ultimatum. This is Beyond Barbarossa the first and so far only English-language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know I'm Scott Burry, writer and narrator. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you through Patreon. So, if you like this podcast, why not subscribe or follow, or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it. And please consider supporting it at any amount through Patreon. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner. Thanks. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel, and all in English. 
And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back. So here we are, 10th January 1943, when the Germans have rejected the Soviet ultimatum to surrender forces in and around Stalingrad or face certain destruction. Konstantin Rokossovsky, designated the commander of this final destruction of the Axis forces in Stalingrad, gave the Germans 24 hours to think about their situation. The Germans in Stalingrad may have done a lot of long, hard thinking, but the senior command knew the situation was hopeless. But the Führer refused to hear this. The men in the castle naturally also talked about their situation, even though they really weren't supposed to. Expressing doubt was cast as defeatism, treason. And many clung to a faith that Hitler would not abandon them, and they looked westward for every hint that relief or rescue was coming. Still, many despaired. Rumors spread that Paulus had told the approaching SS Panzer Corps not to bother trying to rescue the 6th Army. Conditions for the German soldiers were, well, beyond hellish. Food rations had been cut and cut and cut again to, by this point, a piece of bread as big as a man's thumb per day. One doctor wrote home, quote, enemy number one is still hunger, end quote. A soldier wrote home begging his parents to send some food. German soldiers would crawl into no man's land to search the bodies of Soviet soldiers for any scraps of food or rations, as well as to take boots and clothing to replace the rags their uniforms had become. If hunger was enemy number one, cold was number two. Quoting again from Antony Beevor, There was no fuel to melt snow for washing or shaving. Their hollow-cheeked faces were waxen and unshaven, their beards pathetically straggly from calcium deficiency. Their necks were thin and scrawny like those of old men. Their bodies crawled with lice. A bath and clean underwear were as distant a dream as a proper meal. The bread ration was now down to under 200 grams per day, often little more than 100 grams. The horse flesh added to washer soup came from local supplies. In other words, they were slaughtering their own horses. The carcasses were kept fresh by the cold, but the temperature was so low that meat could not be sliced from them with knives. Only a pioneer saw was strong enough. The combination of cold and starvation meant that soldiers, when not on sentry, just lay in their dugouts, conserving energy. It is impossible to assess the numbers of suicides or deaths resulting from battle stress. End quote. If the Germans managed to create some heat, such as by burning the bunk of a comrade who died, the result was stimulating the lice, which made them itchy. Mice and rats were also rampant in their bunkers. More than one soldier wrote about mice chewing off their frozen toes as they slept. Many historians point to the number of German soldiers, non-commissioned officers, and commissioned officers who tried self-inflicted wounds as a way to get evacuated by air from the Kessel. But this did not work very often. The doctors and officers saw through these attempts. Worse, a wound bad enough to require medevac could lead to sepsis and death. So what would be the point? Not to mention that ambulances were quickly identified as moving vehicles and destroyed by Soviet ground or air attack. By January, the number of individual German soldiers surrendering, or as their officers called it, deserting, skyrocketed. On the other hand, many officers refused evacuation out of a sense of duty to the men they commanded. Evacuation, when it happened, was just as risky as staying in the castle. Triage was, for evacuation was not done according to the severity of, of a person's wound or illness, but by who could fit in an airplane. Apparently, only about four stretchers could fit inside a Henkel, but standing room was about 20. So men who could not stand 
were as good as dead anyway. And they weren't evacuated. Only men who could stand. Junker's bombers, overloaded with sick and wounded men, were so heavy that they often could not gain altitude quickly and thus were mercilessly cut down by Soviet anti-aircraft fire. One sergeant in the 9th Flak Division reported watching a Falk Wolf Condor four-engine plane filled with walking wounded being evacuated. As it took off from the runway, for some reason the tail dropped. With four engines straining almost vertically upward, it fell backward, hit the ground, and exploded into a fireball. More and more, the Germans armed their Soviet citizen prisoners and workers to fight for them. The number of Hiwis fighting them surprised the Red Army soldiers. A unit of Tatars, for example, seemed to be very enthusiastic about their ability to destroy Soviet tanks. On 10th January 1943, Rokossovsky brought the hammer down. At five minutes after 6 a.m., 5,000 to 7,000 field guns, mortars, and Katyusha rocket launches opened up. The Red Air Force also bombed German positions. The thunder continued unending for nearly an hour. It was a bitterly cold day with strong winds. Mortar shells bounced when they hit the frozen ground, then exploded in the air, which led to more casualties than if they had exploded on or in the ground. Then successive waves of Soviet riflemen supported by tanks advanced on the nose of the castle, a mild salient on the western end, which you can see in map one. While the Germans had a diminishing number of damaged tanks with limited fuel, the three attacking Red Armies had waves of new T-34 tanks. And while the Panzers did knock out T-34s from time to time, there were always more behind them. Attacking from three sides, the Red Army outflanked the Germans. By evening, they are in, in retreat. In the southern sector of the Nose, the Romanian forces broke and ran, leaving a mile-wide breach. The 64th Army's tanks poured through the hole, flanking the Germans. The next day, 11th January, the Red Army captured the towns of Marankova, Maranovka and Karpovka. By the end of that day, they had killed 1,600 Germans on the steppe. But the Red Army displayed many of the same tactics we still see today in Ukraine, sending riflemen in lines forward as easy targets. In the first three days, the three armies of the Dawn Front, three days, lost 26,000 men and half its tanks. But that didn't stop them from coming forward. By the morning of 12th January, the third day of the advance, they had eliminated the nose as the Germans withdrew to the Rosaska River, as much as 13 kilometers back. The Germans had slaughtered their starving horses as food, so they forced Russian prisoners to pull the anti-tank guns, which was kind of futile because they had almost no ammunition left anyway. They had no fuel either, so there was no way they could move wounded men to the field hospitals. They were left on the steppe to freeze to death. About this time, whole battalions, whole German battalions began to surrender en masse, their commanders recognizing this was their only hope of living. Now, as for that memo about the treatment of prisoners that I mentioned before the break, well, here we now come to the difference between plans and reality. The Russian soldiers wanted revenge on the Germans, and they took it. And while they did take over 100,000 prisoners over the coming weeks into prisoner camps, Soviet soldiers also shot thousands of surrendering Germans on the spot. In Stalingrad itself, the 62nd Army went on the attack, driving the Germans back several city blocks. Loudspeakers in the city blared a message over and over, quote, every seven seconds, a German soldier dies in Russia. Stalingrad is a mass grave. Every seven seconds, a German soldier dies in Russia. Stalingrad is a mass grave. At the Red October plant, the loudspeakers actually named the German officer uh, commanding the unit there. It said, quote, German soldiers, drop your weapons. It makes no sense to continue. Your Captain Munk will also realize one day what is going on. What this super fascist tells you isn't right anyway. He will recognize it. One day we'll seize him, end quote. 
Whenever he heard this message, Captain Gerhard Munch would go out of his bunker to talk to his men in the hopes that the propaganda would not have its intended effect. And for quite some time, his strategy worked. The Germans also hoped that their messages would have an effect, but not only on the Soviets. The generals on the ground, from Manstein to Huber to Hoth to Paulus, knew the Sixth Army was doomed, and they knew that Hitler rejected their argument as pessimistic and defeatist. So Paulus selected someone who might have a better chance of getting the Fuhrer to see reality. This was a decorated panzer commander named Captain Winrich Baer. On 12th January, he took the 6th Army's war diary to the Potomnik airfield, where Feldgondamerie soldiers, or guards, had to use submachine guns to keep desperate, wounded German soldiers away from the Heinkel plane. Baer reached the Führer's command bunker in East Prussia the next day and went straight to give it to his report to Hitler. But before he could say a word, the Führer first explained in detail his honestly fantastical plan to turn the disaster on the Volga into victory. Then Baer gave his report, full of details on the starvation and exhaustion of the men, their lack of food, fuel, and ammunition. He had memorized the, the details of the daily deliveries of the Luftwaffe, the statistics of how much food, fuel, etc. that they brought in. To the other members of the general staff who heard it, Bear's testimony was a bucket of cold water to the face. But they weren't the ones who needed convincing. Hitler turned back to his map showing where the German division stood and his plans for a huge SS panzer attack. This is the one that had been rumored in Stalingrad. Bear looked at the map and he knew that the divisions shown on it were, in reality, a fraction of their nominal strength. And there was just no way this proposed new strike force, even if it could be assembled and supplied, would arrive in Stalingrad in time to make a difference for the 6th Army. Hitler stuck to his fantasy, and Baer knew then that Germany would lose the war. By 15th January, the Soviets reached Potomnik, the main airbase used within the castle, forcing the Germans to abandon it. Not that it was much use to them. Pilots arriving at the airfield described it as a grave of German war and transport planes. Retreating Germans left the wounded behind and limped back, starving in ragged clothing and rotting boots. When someone died on the walk, their bodies were immediately stripped by someone in worse wear. That same day, the 15th, Stavka ordered another major attack near, near Voronezh, where the Hungarian 2nd Army guarded the overextended German flanks. The Soviets blasted a hole 175 miles or over 280 kilometers wide and kept going. By the end of January, they had captured Kursk and were closing on Kharkiv. It was the worst military defeat in Hungarian history, with 30,000 dead and 50,000 taken prisoner, and all their heavy weapons were destroyed. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to mid-January. Still that same day, the 15th, Hitler decided that he would give the 6th Army some more help. So he sent medals to Paulus and other officers. He also set up a so-called special staff, in other words, a committee under General Milch to, quote, oversee air supply operation, end quote. A committee to examine the operation, come up with recommendations. Real helpful. By the 16th of January, the Soviets had pushed the Germans back another 20 kilometers. Retreating Germans fought surprisingly well, given their state and their, the amount of ammunition they had. One report claimed that a single lieutenant operating an anti-aircraft gun by himself took out 15 T-34 tanks. Impressive, if true. By now, with the main airfield captured, the Luftwaffe only parachuted supplies into Stalingrad, not bothering to land. On the 17th, the Kessel was reduced to half its original size. The Germans finally started to make plans to fight their way out in all directions. The plan, such as it was, was to assemble groups of about 200 of the healthier men who would fight through the Soviet forces. 
sort of creating a path for the less healthy, the wounded to follow as best they could. But yeah, as best they could. Some were selected for air evacuation during the daytime, including General Huba, who took his senior panzer officers, his closest associates and friends. Not according to who was wounded, who was most in need. Some who, uh, who were evacuated were specialists, so they were identified as people who could be useful somewhere else. This left the people on the ground. So some of those considered dressing in captured Soviet uniform and driving in captured staff cars to fool the Red Army and slip past them to make their escape. This didn't usually work. Paulus himself seems not to have considered abandoning his men. He wrote a message to his wife and children and included his wedding ring and some other jewelry to send to her. By this point, Hitler had resigned himself to the destruction of the 6th Army and started dreaming about reforming a new 6th Army of 20 divisions. The airlift evacuation continued. Those selected supposed to be specialists who could help rebuild the new 6th Army, those on compassionate grounds, such as having a large family, but mostly any officer with enough clout to get his butt on a plane. In the end, only a few thousand Germans were evacuated from the castle. One was a panzer battalion commander, Captain Bernd Freitag von Loringhoven. He was given a message to deliver to von Manstein. Feeling guilty about leaving his men behind, he arrived in Melitopol filthy, unshaven, and lice-ridden. A tall man, he weighed only 52 kilograms, or about 114 pounds. He reported to von Manstein about the conditions in the Kessel, and then, in his words, I explained with some emotion how the majority of soldiers of the 6th Army still believed, with an iron will, the Führer's promise to rescue them from this hell. Manstein heard me out attentively, but without reacting or displaying the slightest emotion. End quote. It's astounding, this faith in Hitler. Researching this episode, I came across so many letters from soldiers to their families testifying their dedication to their cause and to the Führer. One in particular wrote that he was happy to have served and died, quote, defending our homeland on the Volga, end quote. Combat died down for a few days at this point as the Red Army regrouped and reorganized in its new positions around this shrinking castle. Then, on 20th January, as von Loringhoven reported to von Manstein, Rokossovsky's final offensive began with an attack toward the next Luftwaffe airfield, Gumrak. By the 22nd, Gumrak could no longer be used. Once again, the Germans left the wounded behind as they withdrew. The Luftwaffe tried to shift to a new airfield at Stalingradsky, but it was too small for large aircraft. On this day, General Paulus told a Luftwaffe major, quote, Whatever help arrives from now on will be too late. We have had it. Our men have no strength left. The Major tried to give Paulus an update on the situation on the ground, but Paulus said to him, quote, Dead men are no longer interested in military history. End quote. As they pulled back, the Germans passed horrifying sights. Bodies crushed by tanks, frozen corpses, wrecked equipment, vehicles abandoned when they ran out of fuel, the remains of crudely butchered horses, and the walking wounded who would never reach safety. The end of the Battle of Stalingrad approached. But we'll have to leave the eventful final moments to their own episode. Join me again in two weeks when we'll catch up with Stalingrad, as well as with a part of the war I've been neglecting for far too long, Leningrad. This was a tough episode, so thank you for listening. Take a look at the maps that put a few on the web page for this episode. Just go to beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com and you'll see at the top the latest episode. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, by the way, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. If you like the show, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen.
that really helps spread the word to others interested in history. Remember, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Patreon supporters get earlier access to episodes as well as bonus episodes. I really want to thank those of you who have decided to support it already with a monthly contribution. And you can make monthly contributions of any amount or a one-time contribution. There's been a spate of new supporters for the podcast recently through Patreon. And so I'd just like to take this moment as it's the first episode of 2024 to say thank you very much to PFE, Gavin Edwards, Elliot Goldman, William L. Hall, Nicholas Thomas, Linny Duran, Dirk Jan Muntendam, or is it Dirk Jan Muntendam? Sorry if I mispronounced it. Uh, Frankie the Foot Back Off, Nick54, Ava Ortega Grew, and L. Perez. Your support means a lot. Supporters through Patreon get advanced access to new episodes, plus special patron-only bonus episodes, such as the three-part series on Georgi Zhukov, the three-part series on the Winter War Against Finland, and the pre-Barbarossa attack on Poland. So, to find out how you can become a valued supporter of this show, visit patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa. If you have any thoughts or suggestions to share, please reach out by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. I'd love to hear from you. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine. Thank you.